AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for April 21st, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by Jim Clausing online. Welcome, Jim. Thanks, Brian. Good to be here again. Have you been out on the plane recently? I Actually, I was. So uh, I look forward to talking with you about that a little bit later. Now that the weather is getting better, it's, uh, it's a good opportunity to get out. And, uh, you know, the traditional planes are all wires and levers and things. So. Uh, we'll have a chance to talk about that. Joined here by Matt. How's it going? Welcome, Matt Kaiser, and John Hugaboom. Here again. All right. I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, welcome to the program. And we'll start off today with a uh, well. We're going to dive right in deep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, this is a we covered the APT28 group, I believe FireEye actually. This is a FireEye report yeah. again, uh, similar to last time. So AP228 is a group that FireEye has identified that is Russian in origin, they believe, mm -hmm. uh, mostly involved in intelligence gathering uh, around defense and geopolitical types of intelligence gathered from organizations and other government uh, mm -hmm. agencies that might be more in Eastern Europe as opposed to the US. But in any event, that's not totally exclusive. Uh, in any event, they. Um, uh, they released another article. It's kind of an update on what they've been doing recently. Uh, they noticed that this group, and they're pretty sure that it's the same group. We'll get into why they think that in a second. They're using two new exploits. One's been patched, but the other has not. One's a zero day. Uh, so basically, the tactic is very similar to what we've seen before. The person gets spearfished. They click on the link. Uh, they go visit a website that has um, you know, a drive-by type of infection that has some JavaScript that launches this flash exploit. It launches um, uh, an exploit CVE 2015-3043, mm -hmm. which uh, executes some shell code. That, by the way, that has been patched. Mm -hmm. So if you update your Adobe Flash Player, you'll, you'll be uh, safe from that. Once it does that, the shell code downloads another executable payload that tries to leverage CVE 2015-1701. It's been identified, but there's not been any real public disclosure of right. the details behind it because Microsoft's still working on a fix on it. So basically what it means is this one's being used or leveraged as a zero day out there on a the wild. Uh, Microsoft will probably have a patch within the near future here uh, to address that. And we know that they're working on that. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of uh, the tactics that they're using, once that um, privilege, escalation, privilege escalation occurs via that uh, unpatched Microsoft exploit, they will download a, a, a payload, malware payload, that's very similar to Chopsticks or the Core Shell malware families, which mm -hmm. is what APT28 had used before. We talked about it on a previous program. Uh, it's just a slight variation of that. It has characteristics that are very similar. Uh, not only that, it also is sharing C2 locations that are within the same slash 24. So um, the previous one was in this 87.236.215 dot x range for various um, domains uh, to home back to for the uh, old apt28 stuff this new one is also in that same range just at that 246 mm -hmm. so something to keep an eye on in your network um, looking for those address blocks some of these indicators uh, and i guess also keep an eye out for uh, any patches that are released from microsoft if you have adobe flash that's a good way to at least 
kind of patch your machine because that's the first at route through there. So if you have your Adobe Flash Player patched on all your machines, they won't be able to leverage that in order to get this other privilege escalation uh, to occur. So you can at least mitigate it that way by mm -hmm. closing the front door and having the bedroom door still open, so to speak. <laughs> so a couple things uh, perhaps to note here. One is that uh, I noticed it says uh, user clicks a link to an attacker controlled website. Yeah. Is it attacker controlled or is it attacker is it a compromised site? I know we've seen. I some don't know. I you know I didn't see that in the article or whether they actually mentioned that or not. We know from experience, not necessarily with this group, but with a lot of these other nation state groups, what they'll tend to do is compromise other people's infrastructure out there. So legitimate mm -hmm. companies that just have uh, usually well, smaller websites ones. that can be compromised. Yeah, small <laughs> small companies that have websites, or even other websites like. Uh, you know, vulnerable Joomla instances or mm -hmm. WordPress, some of these content management up on web hosting sites. If they compromise those, they can use those as malware you know, drop as these yeah, malware drop points to distribute their stuff. So it could be when they say it's an attacker controlled website, it's just that they compromise it and are controlling it, not so much that they own it mm -hmm. uh, outright. And that's yeah. usually the tactic they take. A lot of times we see they use other people's legitimate infrastructure for well-known or smaller well-known companies mm -hmm. that you would not suspect. Oh, they're going to XYZ company here. So that doesn't immediately look suspicious if you're a security analyst looking at the traffic. Mm -hmm. But you might need to take a closer look to say, well, wait a second, what are they actually getting here? And mm -hmm. is it in a weird path up on that website that makes it look that it could be strange? Yeah. So. Now, obviously, in a lot, of, most of these stories, we have no idea who the target of the particular, you know, for they're described right. in these scenarios. But you, you have to sort of presume that if they're using zero days, the assumption is that there are only a limited number of zero days that are known that you're that the organizations are able to use. Now, we don't know if that's two, ten, or ten thousand, but it it's still some limited number, and so the, uh, the assumption is that it's a valued target if they're pulling out the zero days. Right, yeah, you don't want to burn a zero day on someone unless it's a rich unless target. Unless they really need it, yeah. or, or perhaps they're well protected and they're, they're, they're a good target. So the, the reason I bring this up is because one of the stories we're gonna talk about a little bit later has a, a little bit of the same notion, so we'll, we'll touch on that one again. Okay. So good point there. John. And uh, so, Jim, let's go to you and uh, we'll talk about, a, I think, more of a hypothetical situation than the, uh, the experiential situation that was documented in this previous story. So uh, what can you tell us? Yeah, there were uh, a, a number of stories this past week. Um, the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, uh, released a new report on um, their studies of the FAA and uh, and their transition to next generation air traffic control and all of this. And the, the report actually made a couple of, of good points, but the, the section that everybody seemed to focus in on this week was a section that suggested that passenger Wi-Fi could be used to attack the control systems of the aircraft and you know, potentially bring it down and, you know, everybody running around like, you know, the sky is falling. And uh, there was uh, some responses to that. There was one on uh, in Forbes by a, a pilot and a cybersecurity professor who took that a little bit, took the report a little bit to task. And basically, I, I tend to agree with his, a lot of what he was saying, that it I think 
I think some of the folks reading the story blew things out of proportion, and I I don't know who actually did the the reporting for the GAO, but I wonder if some of the people didn't completely understand how the aircraft systems work. There was a lot of talk a few weeks ago when the the one German pilot, you know, committed suicide by taking the or allegedly committed suicide by flying an aircraft into a into the mountain and killing mm-hmm. you know, 150 people or whatever it was. And there was all this talk at that time, well, gee, we should have the ability to override the pilots and remote control airplanes from the ground. And I'm thinking, that scares me a whole lot more than, you know, the, than some of these things about potentially attacking control systems from the in-flight Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've, we've seen instances in the past where, you know, folks in, you know, have a, a supposedly overridden the control of drones and crashed them and, and stuff like that. The idea that somebody from the ground could potentially, you know, override the legitimate signal that's used to control a plane or when a plane is being controlled from the ground, you know, somebody jams that frequency, launches some denial of service when the plane's in a descent and it you know, crashes it that way. That kind of thing scares me a whole lot more than, than you know, potentially the in-flight Wi-Fi being used. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, just, just logic, logically, you're going to keep the control systems, you know, separate from the, what the passengers are using, you know, it, there, there's some talk in the report that there, there are firewalls, and mm-hmm. you know sometimes firewalls can be breached, but that that's harder to do than a lot of people think most of the time. It's just for for me, it would it wouldn't make logical sense to be certifying a system where there's a lot of contact between these what should logically be separate systems. I mean, mm-hmm. there was the FAA took Boeing to task when they submitted the uh, 787 Dreamliner for original certification for, you know, for just that issue that their control network was too closely tied to what passengers would have access to. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this, we've talked about the, the industry has talked about this before and just logically it it wouldn't make sense to design systems where it was easy to hop from the you know from the in-flight passenger wi-fi over to control systems uh, so i i my my thought is i i think that the press you know over overreacted to that that one section and i you know i i think the i think there were some good points made in the report i read the actual the whole report and you know, the, one of the things that I really liked in it was the the notion that um, security should be involved in the design from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the things that we've talked about a lot. Any project that involves networking and software, you should really be thinking about security from the beginning, not trying to tack it on after you've you know, designed the whole thing. So mm-hmm. anyway, I... I I, I think their concerns are a little bit overblown in in most of the popular press reporting, but um, 
you know, I, I am not real worried at this point about folks on the passenger Wi-Fi attacking the control systems. I don't know. You're you're a pilot too, there though. <laughs> what are your thoughts on it? I'm, I'm only a pilot if it's, if the uh, phrase "once a pilot, always a pilot" applies. I haven't flown in 20 years, but in any case, the um, you know I, I, I generally agree. You know, my interpretation of the GAO report was really a cautionary message. I, I don't think. I mean, I think they everything that they talked about. They they noted that uh, they were theorizing what could happen. And I think, uh, like I said, a cautionary note that is in the process. And I, I think fundamentally what they were trying to do is convey the message that you just conveyed, that the security needs to be designed in from the beginning. It can't be an afterthought. And that there needs to be a strong separation between uh, what is uh, basically passenger accessible or anyone accessible versus the control systems that need to be part of the operational platform. Platform being the plane and actually the uh, the command and control that's associated with it, whether it be uh, remote access or uh, navigation features, that sort of thing. And I think to your point as well, you know the um, the uh, ability to manipulate uh, the navigation systems uh, is most of what's within the purview at, at this point. Uh, perhaps there is some opportunity to get into the actual control of the plane itself, but they're really not designed to be remotely accessed. And so there's not going to be an API that says turn left, so, so to speak. So, um, you know, it would be harder to get into a system in that regard in the, uh, at least in this day and age. But again, as time evolves, uh, the chances are, you know, one of my fundamental pet peeves about security policy is it never fundamentally improves. You start well, start out with this really nice security policy that's very simple, straightforward. Thou shall do this and do, you can do these things and you can't do those things. And then the entire life cycle of the security policy from that point on is, well, except in this case or poke that hole here and then you end up with this big, you know, uh, you know, nice principle of a policy and a whole bunch of holes poked in it and then the problems that ensue afterwards. So um, I generally agree with you, uh, I think, uh, but we have to be paying attention. I think that's what GAO is saying here is pay attention or we could be running into uh, bigger problems later on. Right. But I don't, I don't think the sky is falling. Uh, no. I don't think we need to, you know, stop getting on planes. I'm still going to get on a plane in a couple of weeks. You know, and, and I have some advice for you, Jim. If you get on the plane, don't tweet about hacking the plane while you're on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I won't do that. Okay, good. Because apparently somebody did. Yeah, um, apparently somebody so did. Chris Roberts of, of One World Labs, he did do something just like that. And I can read the tweet to you. Find myself on a 737-800. Let's see, box IFE, ICE, SATCOM. Shall we start playing with ICAST messages, pass oxygen on anyone? Now, I had to look this up. Pass oxygen on, I believe, has something to do with the oxygen systems, mm -hmm. the masks that drop down when you have, um, you know, a, either a depressurization they, of the yeah, hull. Yeah. Yep. So to send this sort of message to the system, I'm not sure if that triggers the mask to drop, but if that's what it is, that could cause some, some chaos. It would, it would certainly alarm people. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. Which is why I think, that yeah. unfortunately, that he was detained yeah. by by law enforcement afterwards and questioned, and they seized right. his, doc his his hardware and things like that. Mm -hmm. So you know, the, the question is: is it is it the same as crying fire in a crowded movie theater, or it, is it, it, or is it just a playful tweet? 
Uh, well, and that's fundamentally that, you know, I, we could go into a, a significant debate about that topic. Mm -hmm. I, I personally, I was on the fence on this topic and we don't have all the facts. We only have what's been presented. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so based on what was presented, you know, you have to argue, you know, you should be able to tweet just about anything you want. But uh, given the circumstances, there may be other information that suggested that it was worth uh, investigating further. And, uh, by the same token, by virtue of the freedom of speech, to be able to tweet something, that doesn't mean you can't be questioned about it to make sure right. that it wasn't, yeah. uh, you know, that there wasn't something behind that. And uh, right. so. if you don't want to have somebody question you, don't tweet it in the first place. Right. You know, well, use some common sense. Yeah. yeah. So that's. Uh, worth, he's been working in the space of avionic security for about five years. Mm -hmm. So if anybody understands what's possible, it's probably this guy. Well, could be. Yeah. So. We'll see how this uh, how this plays out in the long run. Mm -hmm. So, definitely a very interesting topic and worth spending some time on, nevertheless. So the next topic I thought I'd introduce here is uh, basically, uh, I mean, what was uh, titled "Cyber Deterrence in Action: A Story of, long, of One Long Hurricane Panda Campaign." So this is along the lines that we were talking about earlier. This one happened to be uh, rather than a Russian group. Right. Uh, this one's uh, allegedly a Chinese group. And this is a blog by CrowdStrike, and they talk a lot about the, uh, the tools that they use in this particular mitigation activity associated with a, a client. So there is some marketing twists associated with it, but uh, by the, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But after all, that actually is on, off of CrowdStrike's uh, blog. But the, uh, there are a few points here that I thought might be worth noting. One is that as they talk about this, uh, you, they don't state it specifically, but it clearly is, I think, a good example. John Hughes was a good example as well. You know, this hacking activity, it's not a hobby anymore. It's not even a part-time job. There are people that their career is to target organizations. And if they bump into a wall, they back up, regroup, and then go after them again. And uh, we've seen this, seen this a number of times. If they, are, if they are tasked with targeting an organization, that's what they're going to be doing full time. And in fact, there may be shifts involved in it. They may be spending, you know, working on 24-hour shifts to see when the weak points are in organizations. And uh, once they again, make sin, making sure that they get in and, and, and do their duties quickly. And uh, they may not entirely get out, but they're going to finish what they're doing and then leave the, uh, the plants around the organization to uh, come back to later if they need to. Yeah, I think one of the, one of the things that sometimes victim organizations uh, neglect to consider is that when you do have an event and you've been compromised and you go in, you've done all your due diligence and you think, well, I'm pretty sure I got them out. I'm pretty sure we found everything and we got them out of the network. They will be back. Mm -hmm. They're going to try probably very quickly to you know, regain access. Mm -hmm. um, and if they're not able to, they'll start to rethink their tactics and maybe mm -hmm. switch up tool sets that, for things you don't know how to detect yet, perhaps, mm -hmm. and then try those as other avenues. And they might go away for a little while and sit back for a few months before they try yeah. to get in again. Because if they were in in the first place, there's probably a reason, and there's a reason to get back in again, mm -hmm. to get whatever strategic intelligence that your company or organization well, if they've have. got everybody on alert, I mean, they're probably going to sit back and wait till people calm down right. and they get a little relaxed, take a nap or something like that, and then come back. And I mean that in a figurative sense. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah, and you know, the other thing that uh, I guess sort of the essence of this particular report was the notion about what we were talking about earlier 
this was a case where there were a couple of zero days that were used as a part of this attack activity. And the, uh, basically, the, the suggestion was that, you know, after you boot them out a few times and they, you start, they're going to sort of wear down and say, you know, how many, how many zero days are going to be used on this organization? True. Maybe we could find a better target somewhere else and then come back to these folks later. Um, you know, I think it's going to depend on, again, how important it is they feel it is to target this particular organization and what, uh, what benefit they, they think they're going to get from it. So interesting observation that, uh, that this may have been the case. Now, one of the things that the article obviously does not suggest is that you know, perhaps they found another way in and didn't need to continue during the, the, the path that they are. And this is a fundamental concern or something that we need to consider is that uh, no matter what method you are using to protect yourself, Certainly, if it's commercially available, it's, they may have the opportunity to test against it and find ways around it. And so it becomes a matter of discovery. And you know, my personal opinion is that uh, as passive as you can be about your detection or response capability, it gives, it, it's sort of a wild card. It's something that's uh, very difficult for an attacker to detect or know exactly what methods are underway. Unfortunately, it also kind of leads to a little bit more of a manual right. uh, analysis of mitigation It also might process. give them a little bit of time to persist a, a little bit longer if you have some passive monitoring mm -hmm. as opposed to some proactive, you know, maybe endpoint type protection that are trying to mitigate in real time. Yeah. Uh, so. so I think ultimately it comes down to uh, a good security mitigation strategy is still going to involve people no matter how much you invest in the automation around right. that. And, uh, but security and layers too. Security lots of like, different tool, tool sets. <laughs> it buys you time. Yeah, it buys, buys you more time. time. That's uh, and that's that's the way I tend to think of the security layers. Is uh, in the in the case of a persistent attacker, it's going to buy you time. In the case of uh, you know sort of your run of the mill type of attacker, what it does is it it, it basically um, the layers allow you to make mistakes, which fundamentally are human. If you have a mistake or a, a vulnerability that you didn't know about. In one layer, hopefully the next layers are going to catch it. I, I, it's been said in a lot of places. There really are not that many places where layers of security, of security are used these days. Uh, it is a fundamental part of what really needs to be done when uh, planning out a security architecture and make sure you stick to your guns and, and incorporating that that sort of thing. You're quiet, Jim. <laughs> what, are you, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, no. I you know the. Your your comment earlier that you know you may not be aware that they got back in after it brings to mind the the idea that the bad guys only have to be successful once. Yeah. You know the defenders, you know have to have to constantly be on on the alert, and the the bad guys only have to be successful once, and then you know try to slide under the radar there. Mm -hmm. So you know it is it's not an easy task. Uh, but it's something that, as you said, requires, you know, requires the layers, requires um, the humans. Um, you're not going to be able to automate it all out. So, yeah, absolutely agree. So, uh, Matt, let's go to you. Uh, well, I mean, is, we don't have an election season coming up right away, but <laughs> that's one thing. <laughs> but, but certainly the voting thing is uh, something that people have been paying attention to. And uh, so it sounds sure. like we have an example here. So we have a little bit of, of, of good news, I think. Um, but the reason for it is some really awful, awful uh, security. <laughs> uh, so the Virginia State Board of Elections just decertified 
a horrendously insecure voting machine, the AVS WinVote from Advanced Voting Systems, which, by the way, is no longer a company as far as I can tell. Mm. So for me, the company goes out of business, I would immediately start decertifying the machines because there's no patches forthcoming. Right. Anyway, this one was pretty bad. Each, each machine apparently used WEP for Wi-Fi, which anybody who's been around for a while knows WEP is dead, mm -hmm. long dead. I think in 2004, the IEEE started telling people to stop using this, mm -hmm. uh, and these were still using them. Uh, and it had a number of horrendously insecure default passwords for the administrator account on the machine and for the database key for the access database storing the mm -hmm. vote tallies. There's an article on Ars Technica and a really good write-up on the Freedom to Tinker blog about these machines. And they basically walk you through how would somebody with minimal technical knowledge hack an election? Mm -hmm. And it, basically you step through, you crack web, which are tools to do this very easily. You connect to and one of the several open ports on this machine for, for you know, administrative access. And then you, dump, you, you copy the database out after decrypting it, modify the database, and put it back in place. Mm. And you've owned an election. Now, there are comments on the Freedom to Tinker blog, which I thought found were pretty interesting. Uh, somebody, I think from, the, from Virginia, was talking about whether or not this is really a feasible attack, whether or mm -hmm. not doing this at scale makes sense, what human factors there are in, in place to prevent someone from tampering with like one voting machine. If the, the, the relative levels of, say, Democrat versus Republican votes are relatively the same across a number of machines and the one machine that got owned was skewed way out of, out of whack, mm -hmm. might mean something to them as well. But I mean, if these machines are supposed to be the front line of defense against this kind of vote tampering, this is not the kind of machine you want doing the job. No, it's a good example of how you probably would not design it. It wasn't planned ahead, was it? Well, no, I mean, <laughs> or, or perhaps some of the details weren't worked out. The, uh, so it's been decertified in the state of Virginia. Correct. Now, are we expecting this to propagate to other I haven't States. heard anything about that, but I would certainly, if I had to you know, recommend something, I would say get these machines replaced as soon as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. Now, replacing them, of course, try and have somebody who understands the technology find your replacement hardware mm -hmm. at this point. Ho hopefully, one, something that has support going forward in the future so any further flaws can be found. Mm -hmm. And two, someone who has, hopefully, experience in designing these sorts of systems. So is that going to come out of my taxes, replacing all these uh, voting machines? Yes, it and is. That, that, is, that's, <laughs> that is a concern, of course. That the cost of these devices, I mean, I think somewhere in the comments of that same Freedom to Tinker blog, someone said somebody's fighting to keep these machines, and probably not for the right reasons. And I would, I would assume, my assumption, is that they're keeping them because they don't have the funds to replace them and roll mm -hmm. out new hardware. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's going to be a problem. Legacy hardware sticks around, mm -hmm. uh, even when it really ought not to. So I think fundamentally, this is one of the questions, does it really come down to having to replace the hardware? Or is it really sort of a, you know, kind of a generic platform that somebody could replace the software? I, but it's a hypothetical question. Well, these <laughs> machines are running Windows XP embedded. Yeah. So there might be a path forward. If someone wants to jump into the, 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 the weeds and, and come up with a replacement software for this hardware, mm -hmm. they might have a business plan out of that. You know, but yeah. What do you think, Jim? Yeah, no, the, I know at least one of the, the counties that was fighting to keep them, that was their stated reason for wanting to keep them, though, was they didn't have the money to replace them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's unfortunate. But uh, so 
this becomes a balance. You know, there, there are probably some monitoring techniques that could be put into place to detect some kind of a significant, you know, if you have to download the database and re <laughs> basically load it back up. That seems like something, some basic monitoring would be. passwords on the thing? <laughs> oh, I mean, that, well, that'll help a little bit, you know. I mean, still the web is an issue, but. Yeah, so um, there are some possibilities and, you know, basically some, uh, some bailing some wire fixes, and bubble perhaps. gum that might be able to help. I'm probably not the first to say this, but I think it would be a great idea if you came up with an open voting system platform. Mm -hmm. You know, most people will freak out because you're saying, holy crap, you're releasing the source code to your critical voting systems to the world. But the same thing goes for OpenSSL, other projects where everyone mm -hmm. relies upon it for a critical function. And more eyeballs, in theory, means better code or yep. more secure code. Well, and there were, there were some, actually, some pretty good open source ones developed uh, by some of the, the top security researchers in the field a number of years back and nobody bought them so yeah the uh it, it, that's kind of curious I i'm not sure what the reasoning behind that was but if it's a security reason if you're gonna you know you can always pay or create a basically a consortium to evaluate the security of the platform and um i think there would be at least enough devices that you'd be selling that you could amortize the cost of a good security evaluation across the uh, across to the system. So uh, maybe there were other reasons that it just didn't take off. I just realized I said things like OpenSSL and then I remembered Hardbleed and I might have invalidated my own argument there. Well, but. no, actually, uh, I, well, in, in the grand scheme of things, there were problems with it, clearly. But now a foundation's been set up that basically does security evaluation. I think that's part of the reasons that we were able to, you know, there, there was the heart bleed, and then we had the poodle and the ghost and the, a few other things. That's partly been shaken out because a renewed interest or, or in looking at the security attributes. And the same thing could be done here. All right, well, thank you. Uh, Jim, so let's go to you. I guess, you know, we talked about the root pipe uh, issue last week and uh you have an update for us yeah we did talk about the root pipe that was the um apple fixed it in uh yosemite osx 10.10.3 and we talked about how they weren't planning on fixing it in the older versions unfortunately i noticed in uh, graham cluley's blog this past week that he pointed to an article in forbes that they may not have completely fixed it in even in 10.10.3. There is apparently still what one guy calls a trivial way for any local user to abuse root pipe. Um, and there's actually a demonstration video, although they don't go into the details. Uh, so it's now back in Apple's court to, uh, to fix this other, other method of abusing the what is generally the same vulnerability. So keep your eyes open. I expect that there will be another OSX update uh, relatively soon because this one is, uh, you know, gotten enough publicity that I think Apple is going to be uh, on top of this pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, good. We'll keep an eye out for it. And uh, I understand there's uh, an issue with WordPress that needs an update as well. Yeah, uh, this one just uh, came out this morning. WordPress announcement on WordPress.org that they've released WordPress 4.1.2. And this is a critical security release. Uh, they strongly urge updating from any previous version to up to 4.1.2. Uh, 
Uh, 4.1.1 and earlier had a cross-site scripting vulnerability that would allow um, unauthenticated users to compromise the site. Uh, so that's a biggie. They addressed three other uh, security issues in this one. There was a, an issue with invalid or unsafe file names that could be uploaded. There was a, another cross-site scripting in 3.9 and higher and uh, some SQL injection vulnerabilities in some plugins. So if you're managing any WordPress sites, I uh, highly recommend that you update to 4.1.2 as soon as possible. I've already updated a couple of sites that I'm responsible for. So. Well, it, since you brought that point up, you know, one of the things, I, I don't know, I guess it, I, I have too many pet peeves, so this can't be a pet peeve, but this is uh, one of the things that I know, John, you've encountered or run into before is this, uh, we'll call it ambiguity between the responsibilities of a cloud service provider and the leasers of that service. Right. And uh, there have been cases where, and, and Jim, it sounds like you you understand that that, that line, that gray zone, uh, but this is a case where, in a lot of cases, you know, the WordPress is a patching associated with the application itself is a responsibility of the leaser, not the leasee. Yeah. Yeah, there's, in, in a lot of the, you know, hosted um, web hosting uh, setups, you when you install WordPress in your in your newly set up managed uh, hosting environment, you get to you can choose whether or not the provider automatically updates to new versions or applies you know security fixes, mm -hmm. or or whether it's left as the responsibility of you know the man, whoever's responsible for the you know the content. Mm -hmm. And the, the issue is if you allow automatic updating, it could potentially break your site. Mm -hmm. The downside is if you don't allow automatic updating, then you could leave yourself vulnerable even after these you know, security risks are uh, revealed to the public. So you know, it's a, it's a trade-off. And you know, like some of the sites that I am responsible for, you know, my church website, we automatically apply it. I've got one that's a kind of a family thing that I I I, I apply them myself. Mm -hmm. you know, so it's a it's so, it's kind of a you know a tricky thing to decide which way to do it. But um, a lot of the hosting providers actually do allow you the option, but you have to select that when you first install WordPress. Usually, I, I guess. Uh, but so I guess we have to weigh the odds here. You could have your provider risk breaking your site, or you could have somebody you don't even know break your site, right? right? <laughs> well, obviously. I think the model you, you find, though, out there in the world, you know, there are a lot of big ISPs and web hosting providers in the United States, I won't mention names, that are pretty good about this, yeah. that are, you know, give you these options to help you maintain and upgrade your systems. But you go through the rest of the world, and that's not necessarily the case. So it's yep. left up to the end user who, you know, is renting the web hosting space to say, hey, I'm going to put WordPress on here and use it or Joomla or any of these other content management systems. And they become unmanaged at that point. Mm -hmm. And you'll find tons of these old versions of these things just laying around. What I would say if I was a web hosting provider is 
For those users who opted out, I might have something that's running on all of my servers that I maintain the bare metal of these things and the operating systems and take a look and say, well, you know, user, user 101 here has a vulnerable WordPress site. Maybe I'll send them an email. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and get a list of the various ones that you know are not good because as a hosting provider, I might be concerned about these things being compromised and then being used in botnet related activities or other right. nefarious things that might consume a lot of bandwidth unnecessarily and also perhaps damage the rep my reputation as a web hosting provider mm -hmm. uh, of running a clean environment um, in the, yeah. you know, the greater community out there. My general advice is to stick with the mainstream, somebody that has a brand to protect. That is uh, to stick with a provider that, and it, or another indicator, you know, Jim, I think you provided a good pointer there. That is, if they give you the option of them applying the patches or you doing it yourself, it at least conveys a message that they're, they're, they're going to be paying attention to it. These are fundamental things that you want from, a, from your hosting provider. Right. If, if you're not having them automatically apply them, then it's got to be a, a situation where you are going and checking on it relatively frequently. You can't, you know, if if you're going to be the one applying the patches, you can't let it go, you know, a month or a year um, without, you know, logging into the administrative interface and seeing, oh yeah, there are updates that need to be applied. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things. If you're going to be, if you're going to run one of these on some hosting provider, you know, you need some dedicated folks who are going to stay on top of it. Yep. All right. So let's take a look at the Internet Weather Report for the last week or so here. You know, we've, the first item here we've been uh, reporting on for the last few weeks. Got a couple of little modifications in uh, the way we want to present this. But uh, it's scan sources on port 4143 UDP and 4183 UDP. And, uh, you know, we've been reporting port 4143 is predominantly uh, in the United States and 4183 predominantly in Latin America and Europe. It appears to be some, uh, you know, Internet of Things kind of thing that's taken place here. Previously, we reported this as potentially P2P traffic, but, you know, as we've been investigating this further, uh, looking at the activity. I don't see anybody talking to each other. Doesn't seem like anybody's talking to each <laughs> There's other. There's a lot of so. scanning and nobody <laughs> answering. <laughs> right. So I'm not quite sure. Yeah. So we're. Uh, so, uh, nevertheless, uh, it appears that there may be scanning activity going on here as opposed to P2P activity. Now maybe this is. You know, we've seen cases in the past where, you know, things have been set up and they just don't work right. And so maybe it'll come back in a different way or something like that. Now, John, I got the impression that there might have been some relationship to port 3159 as well. 3159 UDP, which we reported on maybe in the January, February time frame as well. And I kind of forgot about it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of been there, and I think it's still there. It would yeah. probably be nice level. to kind of put it into yeah. this chart here. But when you look at the payloads, and I think we mentioned the payloads that are in the packets in one of the previous reports here, same type of pattern. It's a 16-byte mm -hmm. payload. It's got, you know, some values in certain spots and zeros and others that align exactly with the 4143 and 4183 stuff. So mm -hmm. it's the same protocols, so to speak, but I, I, I have no idea yeah. what any of this is. Yeah, so we're um, still kind of digging around. This could be some type of a backdoor that uh, is undocumented or some sort of thing, but perhaps not even just working the way it's supposed to be at this point. Now, it's also notable that in the last week, or actually the last few days here, uh, the activity that is the number of participants performing this activity, both in you know United States and, and other parts of the world, have basically tapered off significantly. So it may be that this uh, is just you know 
fizzled out or been turned off or there's some other activity that's taking place. Uh, we'll keep an eye on that. And, and uh, it could be transitioning to some other you know, set of activity as well. So next item here is probes on port 8009 TCP. This is an alternative port for HTTP. John, you always have, or, were you gonna say something? No, no. <laughs> John, you always have a, oh, but it also gets used for, I don't think I have one for 8009. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, I'm showing you the last 180 days of activity here. I'm sure we've reported on this one before. It's actually just a handful of addresses from China, and I'm going to say a handful. It's probably less than a handful. It's a handful with a couple of fingers cut off. These sources are also scanning on a number of other ports, and uh, I just picked an example set of ports, you know, port 21, that's FTP, 69, that's TFTP, uh, 161, that's uh, SNMP, I'm not sure what 873 is, but uh, 1433 is Microsoft SQL. 1723, I think that's the... Um, H.323. H.323, yes. And so it's a variety of ports. Also notable, the 32764, that was a backdoor port into, I think, uh, Netgear devices Somebody, and some yeah, others like that. So uh, just you know, clearly uh, has some nefarious uh, intent around this. There, There's really no other explanation that I can come up with anyway. That's... That's my opinion on the matter. Next time we hear probes on port 502 TCP. This is Modbus over TCP IP. Modbus is basically a uh, a, uh, a serial protocol. It's you know originally an RS-232 for uh, doing a couple things for uh, RTU, those remote terminal units, or uh, SCADA type systems, these basically sensor type systems. So uh, basically you can equate this to some sort of industrial control activity. Now, the larger blocks, the darker blue things that you see there are associated with a US university that's doing research activities. So I'm gonna declare that basically innocuous, relatively speaking. And then uh, the larger spikes are, uh, are it's more ambiguous about the, uh, the intent behind it. It's uh, actually uh, spread across a group of uh, basically an entire slash 24 subnet for a bit, what appears to be a cloud service provider that's located in Switzerland. So that may also be research activity, but these are the, uh, you know, sort of the bigger spikes that you're seeing. They're the taller spikes, but shorter period of time uh, on the graph. So we have at least two groups that are uh, conducting this sort of activity. And it is, you know, not entirely unexpected that there might be research along these lines because this is an area that, uh, from a infrastructure point of view, folks are, are concerned about. Uh, but by the same token, gathering that information could be used for nefarious purposes. Uh, looking at the most probe ports, the top 10 most probe ports, um, we had quite a bit of movement here in the last week, and, and we were investigating this a little bit, thanks to Jim. One is that uh, what we had been reporting on port 135 TCP appears to have dropped off the list. You know, that was basically one group of activity that was taking place and pretty active. So if that is dropped off, that is uh, most likely a reason that a lot of others might move up and with a little bit of shifting involved in it. Uh, there was another one that we had on the report last week, which is uh, port 53 UDP, a lot of probing activity on that, and that looked to be uh, partly associated with some uh, denial of service attacks. So at the top of the list, port 22 TCP, that's SSH, that's remained stable at the top of the list, followed by 443 TCP, and then 445 TCP, and then uh, 80 TCP, port 23 TCP. We're gonna take a little closer look at that later in the context of the most sources probing, and um, but and so that's uh, bumped up quite a bit, moved up five places here, and then uh, port 8080 TCP followed by 1900 UDP. 
especially with SSDP or that, and that being uh, refractive denial of service attacks. Uh, we talked a little bit about 1433 earlier uh, with some probing activity as a, as a favorite and then uh, 3389 TCP as well. So let's take a, just a quick look at uh, the number of scan probes on port 445 TCP. You know, this is traditionally associated with a configer. And I don't know if what happened here. It might have been somebody deployed a bunch of Windows servers and they immediately got configer infections. <laughs> I have no other explanation right. for this. Uh, but it did seem like there might have been actually kind of a group associated with the spikes that are occurring here. But there have been some recent spikes in the number of probes on port 445 TCP. And uh, anyway, that's my theory. There may be some other explanation for it as well. Looking at the top 10 most sources doing the probing, uh, at the top of the list, port 23 TCP, I think that has, uh, has actually moved up five spots. Um, you know, as we've been reporting, things have been dropping down, and uh, what we're going to see here is that's, uh, that's popped up again. The other notables on this uh, list here, one, uh, well, actually, uh, port 445 is on the list. Uh, 2715, that's uh, generally on there. Uh, 6881, that's BitTorrent as well, right? And then uh, we have so, some ICMP activity that's taking place. But the uh, one that I wanted to note is actually uh, 17788 UDP. That's moved up onto the list. And um, that one is, uh, we'll take a little closer look at that. And we've discussed here. that one before on the show, but I think sometime last year. Uh, it's been a while. It's a, yeah, I think yeah. it was last year. So uh, looking at port 23 TCP here, we're looking at 60 days of data. You know, if I had taken it back, actually the levels that we're seeing here would be relatively low. But what is notable is in the last week, there's been a spike or a bump in the number of sources that are probing on port 23. We'll see how that develops. It's, it's been a little spiky. I mean, not spiky in the uh, immediate sense, but uh, not what we typically see. Normally, we see this jump up and then sort of a decay path. Uh, in this particular case, what we're seeing is uh, a little bit of, you know, several little jumps. So it could be an indicator of some changes that are taking place or uh, uh, in the uh, command control, control, perhaps, maybe some interruptions that are taking place. We'll see how that develops over time. And then looking at scan sources on port 17788 UDP. This one, the characteristics look much like BitTorrent. John, you had taken a look at yeah, this. Yeah, from what I've seen, and, you know, it's not perfect visibility, but there's, it was all BitTorrent stuff mm -hmm. occurring on that port, but it wasn't a whole lot, so, uh, from the sample set that I had. Yeah. So there's a chance this is innocuous. Clearly, there's a uh, you know there was an abrupt growth back in the beginning of March, and then uh, a growth pattern since that time. There is a kind of an odd demographic in the uh, sources that are uh, participating in this. It seems to be uh, relatively biased. So uh, we'll keep an eye on this and and uh, give you updates if we uh, find anything of interest. Right. All right, so that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. We certainly welcome your comments, suggestions on the program, uh, any feedback you have, or, uh, or questions. Uh, if you uh, would like to get hold, you know, watch Threat Track. Um, hopefully, you would like to watch Threat Track. It's on the AT&T Tech. You are right now. <laughs> you might be just listening to it. How did you get here? <laughs> It's on the AT&T Tech channel. It's att.com slash threat track. It's also available on YouTube as well as on iTunes. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. I'd like to thank you, Jim. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, John. I'm Brian Rixrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. 
The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.